In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bravo Docket. So today we're going to be talking about some of the recent motions that have been filed in Jen Shaw's case. I believe all of these were in anticipation of her trial when it was scheduled for March 22nd. But since it got moved, they're going to have a, a bit of time to argue these and resolve them. But they are very interesting. They're pretty juicy. Do you want to give us a little preview of what they are, Angela? Yeah, so the motions eliminates the stuff that the uh, government wants in, Jen Shaw wants out. Brian Moylan's book about the Real Housewives is cited multiple times. There's claims that uh, Jen Shaw threatened Stuart Smith, Stu Chains, and his wife, and they want to keep that out. Lots of lots of really interesting stuff. So, do you want to give an overview of the motions in Limine and what they are? Yeah. So these are motions. When you have a jury trial, you file motions in limine. And that's when both sides say what they want to keep from being put in front of the jury so that the jury isn't prejudiced, there isn't a mistrial, things like that. Because you can't you can't unring a bell. You can't unhear or unsee things. And so they make arguments saying, okay, well, this the relevance of this is so low, but the prejudice is so high that it shouldn't be admitted, even if it is slightly relevant and so on and so forth. So yeah, the law around this is that evidence can be excluded or may be excluded if its probative value is substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice, confusion of the issues, misleading the jury, or by considerations of undue delay, waste of time, or needless presentation of cumulative evidence. So the moving party puts in what evidence they think should be excluded and why it would prejudice their case and sway a jury unfairly. So I like to think of it like the the scales of justice. And so you have to put the proposed evidence on one side and how much that actually tends to prove what the government wants to use it to prove and then the potential prejudice to the jury on the other side. And if it, the prejudice of 
whatever is being whatever the evidence is far outweighs the probative value, then it should be excluded on that basis. And so the judge has to look at that, put it in the scales and see, make a determination. And then something that's going to be argued in these is that unfair prejudice in the criminal context can be evidence that shows someone's propensity or likelihood to commit crimes and that evidence's probative value is outweighed by its prejudicial impact. And I think that's what comes up a lot in Jen Shaw's motions here. So it's like their capacity to do something like that. The fact that they've lied before, they're going to lie again. Things like that. Like that evidence is often withheld from the jury in, 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 unless it's in specific circumstances. Like going through these, Jinshaw is arguing that the government should not be able to put on evidence in front of the jury that she did not disclose to the IRS certain income from her participation in the crimes charged. So that's one thing the government wants to do. Number two, the government wants to admit evidence that Jen Shaw failed to maintain records relating to foreign financial accounts. And they're arguing that, no, this this isn't direct evidence and it shouldn't be allowed in. So that's the second thing. Three, evidence, the government wants to get in evidence that in June 2018, that Jen Shaw directed Stuart Smith to lie during a Federal Trade Commission deposition. So that's the FTC deposition that Stuart Smith admitted to giving false testimony in, in his plea. And then four, the government wants to get in evidence relating to the use of a credit card of Mastery Pro Group by Jen Shaw. And there she makes she does not want that in. And then five, evidence that during the period of the indictment, which is a long time, that's like nine years. I think it was twelve years. Yeah. So evidence that during those twelve years that Jen Shaw threatened Stuart Smith and Stuart Smith's wife. And Jen Shaw does not want that in front of the jury. Or is the indictment period from when they received the indictment until now? I well, read it like that she may have threatened them after the indictment, but I, I don't know. Well, in the motion, it, well, I don't know, because I, I, that's what I thought initially, too. Yeah. But then in her attorney's motion that was filed on her behalf, they say the government will seek to admit evidence that during the time of the indictment, which spans nine years, the defendant threatened Smith and Smith's wife. So, but I agree with you. When I first, I just assumed immediately that it was... She, she got arrested and then was like threatening. Don't, you know, snitches get stitches. Don't you dare. <laughs> like, right. I'll drown you in a lake or whatever, like what she said to Whitney. And then finally, they do not want in any clips from the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. They don't want any clips used from that in their case. There's one more. Oh, there's one more. Oh, okay. Oh, and then they. this is a big deal. Jen is arguing that the government should be precluded from introducing statements of alleged co-conspirators until the government establishes the scope of a single conspiracy. So we can talk more about that later. That's a big one. So going back to the top, the exclusion of evidence of alleged tax evasion. I, I mean, I, I can see their arguments on this one. This isn't direct evidence of the crimes that are being charged. So, I mean, it's not direct evidence of the conspiracy to commit money laundering. It's not direct evidence of the wire fraud via telemarketing. But it, I can see why saying being like, okay, well, if you believe that this was all, you know, completely above board and you weren't doing anything wrong, why didn't you disclose all of it on your uh, federal tax returns? I mean, it looks bad. But it's also risky because it's like, she's like, who are they going to... Who are they going to get this evidence? How are they going to get this evidence out? I mean, I guess they can't if she, they can't cross examine her with it unless she takes the stand. So 
it's are they just admitting the records? I guess maybe they have a records custodian or somebody say like these are the verified records and they can ask that person on those records. Is there was this income disclosed? No. So, you know, can you explain what that means? And maybe they have an expert or something for that. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) But I took their their argument to be that the government can't just bring it in just because they want to bring it in. They have to tie it to the alleged fraud or directly link it to the direct alleged fraud. So that yeah, that's exactly right. It has to be probative of a disputed issue at trial. It can't be so ancillary that then it doesn't, you know, meet that balancing test. And then the evidence that she failed to main records retain, relating to foreign financial accounts. Again, I can see when you are charged with money laundering, how this could be an issue. So again, I get their point. They need to prove the connection specifically. So yeah, because they because they allege that she has bank accounts in other countries. Like, yeah. what was it? Kosovo. Oh, Kosovo. I thought I was going to say something else with a K. Yeah, in Kosovo. So they're like, why don't you have records of this? But why would she? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the whole point? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and they're saying the government has to show that this, the funds that in these foreign accounts are directly related to the alleged activity and that the government shouldn't be able to put on this evidence until they can show that connection. And that's fair. I think that's, that's fair. They should have to show the connection before. Yeah. They do that. Isn't it interesting that they are not denying the existence of the accounts? Well, so like reading this, I like at the very beginning in their preliminary statement, they say the government's theory of the case is that Jennifer Shaw was involved in a conspiracy to commit wire fraud through a telemarketing scheme that spanned nine years from 2012 until at least March 2021 and conspired to commit money laundering with the proceeds of the fraud. Ms. Shaw's defense is that while she worked in the telemarketing industry and worked with many of the people who are witnesses in this case, including Stuart Smith, she did not participate in the fraud. So because so many everybody else, as Ceci has explained and we've talked about in our episode, everyone else has pled guilty or offered a plea. They they can't really deny. How many people is that again that have said, yes, this was fraudulent? Twelve. Yeah. So that's 12 people saying, yeah, it was fraud. I, I did the fraud. I feel terrible about it. It's fraud. So they kind of like saying it wasn't fraud isn't going to work. They're essentially saying, okay, yeah, there, there was fraud, but she didn't know about it and she didn't participate in the conspiracy. So she thought everything was great and was yeah. reasonable. And but above she had the law. this account in Kosovo just for fun. <laughs> yeah. So the third one is evidence that she, they want to exclude evidence that she directed Stu to lie during the FTC deposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're basically saying like, it doesn't, show anything that the government has to prove in this case, which... Yeah, they they argue, and this is the propensity part that I was bringing up before, they argue that this evidence would only be used to show her propensity for dishonesty, and on that basis, it should be excluded. So the only... They, they're arguing that the government only wants to put this in to be like, look at how bad Jen is, instead of actually tying it to any part of the scheme. And on, on that basis, it's more prejudicial than probative, so it should be excluded. The next thing is the, the government wants to get on evidence relating to the use of the credit card by Mastery Pro Group by the defendant. The government proposes to elicit evidence that during the period of the indictment, the defendant used the credit card of Mastery Pro Group for personal expenses in violation of her agreement with Stuart Smith and falsely claimed that the personal expenses she charged to that credit card were unauthorized purchases made by her assistant in New York City. So they're, she's just saying, her attorneys are saying, like, what is the justification for this? How does this prove anything specifically that 
is in the indictment. And it just, she's like, the evidence will only paint the defendant in a bad light as someone who would use a business credit card for personal expenses and then falsely blame another for his use. Are they admitting there that she did? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) They're not like, it should be excluded because it's false. They're like, it should be excluded because it paints her in a bad light. Which I think you're allowed to paint people in a bad light in trial. Not everything has to be great, but it does have to meet a standard. I mean, it does like you. It has to be a reason you're bringing it in. The probative value has to outweigh the prejudicial. And like it can't, it it should be as fair as possible to to the criminal defendant, to the person charged with the crime. And it's kind of like, okay, so if the government has millions of documents and all this evidence and maybe eight or five or four of the co-conspirators are going to say, oh, yeah, she did do this. She knew. Then why, they don't need this extra stuff. And so there isn't a strong justification for letting it in. Also, like you, you have actually done all these things. You don't want her to get an appeal granted on the basis that this was an unfair trial either. So that's another consideration. Yeah. This evidence is kind of like if they brought in the Uber driver <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to testify. To testify. I mean, it's, it's like some of it's like, I don't see if the government really has all this evidence, then they, they probably don't need all of this stuff. And it is, it could very easily be very prejudicial. Yeah. So, yeah, the next one, evidence that she threatens uh, Stu, Stu Chains and his wife. Now, that might, if Stu testifies against her, I could see how that could come in. Yeah. Because that shows that she knew that what they were doing was illegal and she was worried about, you know, I could see I could see that coming in. But like the like the defense says here, without more details, difficult to discuss this proffer of evidence since neither the subject matter content or the timing is provided. Yeah. They're like, it's not enough details for us to argue against why it shouldn't be brought in. And then here I thought was real juicy stuff. Uh, Ceci, do you want to talk about this one a bit? This is excluding any Real Housewives clips from use at trial. And we kind of knew they were going to do this. And it kind of came up in the um, voir dire questions, too, where one of their proposed voir dire questions to the jury for jury selection is, have you ever seen Real Housewives of Salt Lake City? And do you think they're actually rich? And do you think you believe everything that on that show is actually true? So it's like they're painting this narrative that what you see on the screen isn't necessarily true. And it's kind of played up for the cameras and, you know, which it is. Yeah. The, just to read from some of the briefing, the, the defense opposes the use and evidence of any clips from Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. And they talk about how it would have to fall under one of the hearsay exceptions, which is true because it's an out-of-court statement. So to evaluate whether any of the statements the government might seek to use falls under an exception to the hearsay rule, it is necessary to examine the method used to produce and edit the housewife show and also the motivations and contrivances that permeate the production of the housewives franchise. As will be clearly shown below, there is no circumstance under which a clip of Jen Shaw from her appearance on The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City should be used in court as these clips do not have any indica of reliability, which is the fundamental principle underlying the hearsay exception and indeed the rules of evidence. And then I thought this was fascinating. So because this is this attorney is having to educate this federal judge on The Real Housewives and how they work. I mean, it's, in, unless this federal judge, is it a man or it's a man, isn't it? Yeah. So unless this male federal judge is a fan of Real Housewives and has some familiarity with this or his wife does or 
I don't know, husband, whoever, then she, she has to educate the judge on it. So she has links to articles like see Real Housewives, a beginner's guide, time.com. She says each housewife series takes place in different location, talks about New York City, Atlanta, and there's literally hundreds of episodes. So and then she quotes Brian Moylan's book, The Housewives, which is I bet when he wrote that book, he did never had any idea that it would be quoted in legal proceedings for a real housewife who might go to jail for a long, long time. As Moylan stated, we know that many of these women are playing at being rich. One has to appear to have money to get on the show to make even more money and then needs to be used to look like one has money. The persona of the women on each of the franchises is that they are glamorous, incredibly rich, live lives of extreme and conspicuous consumption and are willing to reveal their private lives in public. There has to be a storyline and a narrative to create drama and maintain the interest of the viewers. Thus, the question arises, how fake or how real are the women and the lives portrayed on the, on the housewives? The answer is, the women and their lives are both real and fake, and it's impossible to tell where reality ends and fantasy and outright deception and fakery begins. The women, the housewives themselves are real people. The basic facts of their lives are real. Their names, their husbands, the divorces, the time in rehabs, their children. But the more pertinent questions, according to Moylan, are how produced are these shows? How much of what you're seeing on TV is natural and spontaneous and how much is crafted and manipulated? As Moylan puts it, when lives get turned into storylines, how much of it is reality? How much is for the camera and how much is manipulated in the post-production? So the answer is a great deal, probably much more than the average viewer imagines. The line between what is real and what is produced, manipulated and made up is porous and hidden. I love that this is an illegal briefing. <laughs> mm, I know. It's so good. Do you want to take the rest of it? Um, yeah, let me scroll down. I just wanted to to um, note that they're bringing this up because they're trying to say that there is an incentive to exaggerate the things that you put on the show. Because as you get more popular, you make more money on the show and you want to stay on it to make more money. So people play up what they do on the show to stay on. And I think that's true. I think that's a really fair argument. Yeah. I Again, the government shouldn't have any problem if they have everything that they say they have proving that Jen did these things without use of the Real Housewives footage. The, the stuff that I think might come in is where she talks about how Stuart Smith is her closest, comp like goes on and on about that. And then the stuff where she says, you know, you've been with me every step of the way and all of that, because if she's uh, as her defense, disclaiming knowledge of Smith or what he did or disclaiming their relationship or denying that, then that could come in like video recording of her saying that they are super close and do everything together and know he knows everything about our business. That could come in. I could see that part coming in. I'm um, honestly, I hope a lot of it comes in for the jury, but not necessarily for, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's the best for like avoiding error on appeal, <laughs> but it will be interesting to see, yeah, what comes in. Wait, can you bring up the point? You haven't brought it up on our podcast. You brought it up when we did Meet Amy Phillips. Oh, yeah. The yeah. Bethany thing. Can you bring that up here? Yeah. So a long time ago, before Ceci and I even connected on the internet, I had been kind of interested in Bethany's divorce, and I was reading some stuff about it. And it was fascinating because Bethany is so smart, and she, Bethany actually argued in her divorce proceedings. So Jason Hoppy, her ex, was trying to argue 
that he should get copies and you know of all of the recordings of Bethany for use in the divorce proceedings and was trying to subpoena I believe he was trying to subpoena all of that and and to use part of it and then Bethany argued very eloquently I mean better than I think an attorney could have argued that that didn't have the knowledge that she had that that should not come in because for the court to you know, order the production of that and then for them to be able to use it, then the court would have to watch everything, would have to watch hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of video because she said there's, you know, we record for 40 hours and then it's there's a 10 minute clip that's taken out of that. And so for the court to understand the context of what was being said and what was being done, the court would have to watch all of it. And so Bethany was smart enough to make that argument to the court in in a way that would be compelling to the court because that judge does not have time and does not want to do that. And that's true. In order to get the true context of it, you would have to watch all of it. And so I just thought that was uh, fascinating that she was able to argue that well and also able to argue from the viewpoint uh, of understanding what would be compelling to the judge because that's, you know, difficult. That's difficult to do sometimes. Mm-hmm. She they won that that motion. Yeah. And I think that is an, another argument that they're making here as well. So the first, like we just read through, is that they're playing it up for the camera to stay on the show. And then the second part is that it's highly edited and crafted through post-production. So it says that they film more than 40 hours of footage in a 44-minute episode, occurring, according to Brian Moyen. Is it Moyen or Moylan? Oh, they misspelled it there. Haha, <laughs> that's their fault. Moylan, not me. <laughs> I caught a typo. Moylan. And any actual clip of The Housewives is just a tiny portion of the footage that was shot. And an episode can turn a week of filming to just part of a day. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to bring up, because I think this is, I never also never expected to read uh, Shade at Melissa Gorga in a legal pleading, but it says at the beginning of every season of every Housewives production, the producers interview each character and work up a storyline for the season. Some of them are more or less real. A child going to college, comma. Some are entirely made up, trying to have another baby or pretending to want to open a particular business. And I'm like, is that? Directed directly at Melissa Cork. <laughs> I thought that trying to have another baby was directed at um Jenny. Oh no, I read that as uh I like Melissa Gorga had this storyline of how she supposedly wanted to have another baby and nobody believed it. And it came up at the reunion that she was faking that for a storyline. Yeah. That's but then they cite they cite to Moylan, so yeah. it's what yeah, whatever he yeah. was thinking for that. Yeah. So I don't know. But yeah, I think yeah, trying to have another baby's maybe been a fake storyline from multiple people <laughs> i think it uh started or the fake pregnancy ramona being like i oh, think God. i'm pregnant <laughs> i was watching old episodes of brony like a couple weeks ago and was just cracking up at that and like that was so funny she's like on the yacht or whatever being like yeah. oh i think yeah i was like that is just no one I mean, no a pregnancy test it's like mm, okay <laughs> <laughs> if you're not like if you're that age and you're not getting your period it's probably more likely menopause as opposed to your Knocked a butt. Okay. Okay, Ramona. Yeah. So I think that's the crux of their argument. Yeah, for that. So that and but yeah, we'll see what comes in. Oh, wait, wait. Let's read this. So she says, thus, while, or the, 
the motion. Thus, while some of what goes on in any particular Housewives episode has some aspect of reality in that Miss Shaw is playing a character called Jen Shaw and not a totally fictional character who never existed, she is nonetheless playing a character who is molded by the requirements of being on the Royal Housewives of Salt Lake City and any statements made in the context of playing that character on a show that has been highly curated and edited to satisfy its dramatic requirements do not have the indicia of reliability that would allow admission into a trial under the hearsay rule or any rules of evidence, nor should these clips be used for cross-examination as prior inconsistent statements for the same reason. Did you read that already? No. No, okay. but I, no, I didn't read that already. No, and I okay. think that's, yeah, I think what they're saying there is totally fair. And they also bring up, um, there are other techniques used by housewife editors like Frankenbites, uh, you know, defined by Merlin as the gruesome name giving to a process where an editor splices words someone has said from different sources to make a sentence the person didn't say at all. I, I think that's fair to bring that up because that does happen. And then the fact that they record confessionals um, after like a storyline has been established so they know what they want them to talk about. And so it's just, you know, this is all the crafting of a narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I, I it'll be interesting to see what the judge rules. They're going to have to pick out the specific clips, show them, I would assume, show them to the other side, and then they can argue the evidentiary objections over it. I, all bets might be off if she takes the stand, and then it's impeachment. I don't, I don't know, but yeah, be really interesting. The last okay, one, so, yeah, this is the one where she wants to exclude. She says the government should be precluded from introducing statements of alleged co-conspirators until the government establishes the scope of a single conspiracy. And again, the conspiracies, it has to show like out these people were a group that had a like a goal that they all agreed upon. And so this is what they were all doing. This is all part of the same thing. It's like if you have a mob boss and then they've got captains and then they've got soldiers. If anybody's watched The Sopranos, that's and they're all agreeing. <clears throat> yeah, this is how we're going to, you know, do whatever like launder this money, do whatever, that's a conspiracy. So they're saying, like, you need to show the scope of a single conspiracy. There's so many actors and things going on here that in order to introduce evidence of co-conspirators, you have to lay the foundation that they were part of a conspiracy that Jen was actually a part of. So this is specific to Federal Rule of Evidence 801D2E, which says to admit hearsay Testimony under Rule 801 D2E, the district court must find A, that there was a conspiracy, and B, that the members included the declarant and the party against whom the statement is offered, and that the statement was made during the course of and in furtherance of the conspiracy. So these are the preliminary questions that have to be resolved by the district court. That's what they're arguing. Okay, so Jen Shaw on the co-conspirator point, I just wanted to read a paragraph directly from the motion that I thought was really interesting. It gives us some insight into what she's trying to argue here or what she might try and argue in defense of herself at trial. So she says, it is defendant's understanding, so Jen, that the government will use Stuart Smith as a cord by which to tie Ms. Shaw to Smith's own crime spree and a host of other conspiracies and actors with whom Ms. Shaw has no real connection. But the government's own evidence suggests that Mr. Smith's testimony could be a gateway for impermissible hearsay. For example, the government used cooperators to secretly record calls with Mr. Smith in an effort to gather evidence against Mr. Smith and Ms. Shaw. While talking openly with his partners in crime about his own illegal behavior, 
Mr. Smith specifically tells these individuals to keep Ms. Shaw in the dark about the content of their conversations. This is but one example of the distinct conspiracies with distinct casts of conspirators and should give the court pause before allowing the government to carte blanche offer hearsay testimony under the impermissibly broad umbrella of, quote, telemarketing fraud. I thought that was just really interesting because it's interesting to read that there were recordings of phone conversations. I think we knew about that before and we've mentioned it in prior episodes. But the fact that supposedly in one of these transcripts that Jen got, Stu was like, leave Jen out of this. Don't bring her in. I thought that was interesting. Did you have any thoughts on that? No, but it just is really interesting because it makes you wonder, Is was Stu trying to keep portions of the funds for himself? Or was there some kind of concerted effort between the two of them? Like, was she using money that, you know, she didn't want like her family or Coach Shaw to be implicated or, you know, did they both have an agreement not to talk about each other? Who knows? But that's it's interesting. It's super interesting. It could also be, and we mentioned this in our latest Supreme Court Zoom. If so, if you want to join us monthly, we have these Supreme Court Zooms on Patreon. We mentioned in the Supreme Court Zoom that this could just be one transcript and one instance of him just saying leave Jen off of it. We don't know if this happened often, but it is very interesting. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, so the government has, they filed an opposition to Jen Shaw's motions in limine, and they have some defenses of their intent to get in some co-conspirator statements. Well, everything. Well, they yeah, have everything. Them. So yeah, but yeah, you just talked about the co-conspirator statements. But yes, they have uh, responses to just about everything. And the details are still somewhat vague because the government seems to be holding its cards close to their chest, which they're allowed to do, are interesting. Yeah, so I think we should go through these in the order that we went through Jen's arguments. 
So the, I guess, technically it's seven things, but like five main pieces of evidence and then the two high level concepts. So the first, the first thing we had mentioned was Jen wants to exclude the government's evidence of alleged tax evasion. And earlier in this episode, we explained why she wants that out. Do you want to talk about why the government wants to bring it in? Yeah. I mean, so they argue that Jen Shaw's failure to report telemarketing income on her tax returns is particularly probative in this case because she has taken the position that her telemarketing income was legitimate. She says, for example, in her motion that while she worked in the telemarketing industry and worked for many of the people who are witnesses in this case, including well, worked with many of the people who are witnesses in this case, including Stu Chains, she did not participate in the fraud. And the government points out that it has the burden of proof. And so they have, because they have like such a high burden, this is particularly relevant. If she believed that it was absolutely legitimate income, why wouldn't you just put it on your tax return instead of a uh, bank account in Kosovo, as they're alleging? They make a good point. Yeah. <laughs> So that brings us to the next one, which we talked about, was the evidence of failure to maintain foreign accounts. The government for this one argues, hey, we put it in the indictment. We said you had accounts in Kosovo. This is within the heart of what constitutes direct evidence of the charged conspiracies. And they're saying if you didn't disclose these accounts, the Kosovo accounts, to the IRS, then it's consistent with our theory that these accounts were used to launder the fraud proceeds and that the defendant, Jen, took steps to conceal that participation in the conspiracies and the proceeds of her of her crimes. So they're saying this just goes to prove that you were in this conspiracy. Of course, we want evidence of those foreign accounts, especially if you weren't including them in your your tax returns or filing them in the report of foreign bank and financial accounts. They want to bring that in before the jury. Yeah. And I think another good point the government makes is um, if you listen to some of our other episodes on this case, we talked about some of the other pretrial motions. And one of the big things that Jen Shaw was alleging via her counsel was that it's it's too vague. She doesn't understand exactly what the government is, is, is alleging that she's done wrong. And, you know, you know, what accounts because there is a separate there. It isn't just the wire fraud. There is the money laundering charge, as we explain on YouTube. But she says uh, she doesn't know which ones. And they're saying, well, yeah, it's the ones in Kosovo. So you've had plenty of notice (laughs) as to Mm -hmm. which bank accounts we're talking about were involved in the telemarketing scheme. So they make another point there. It's been in the it was in the indictment. We all read about Kosovo. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the next one? The FTC lying? Yeah. So, you know, part of our motion limited to exclude that was that their the notice of what they want to get in is deficient with regard to this FTC deposition. And their response is basically that Jin Shah has had plenty of notice to prepare for this evidence. They produced the FTC deposition in discovery and that during the deposition, the FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission lawyers, questioned Smith about his work in the telemarketing industry. And then they're saying notably at several points throughout the deposition, Stu Chains conspicuously did not mention the defendant when he was asked about individuals with whom he worked at various telemarketing companies. Um, also, just to point out, we went back and again, we talked about this in our last Supreme Court Zoom. We went back and looked at those FTC charges and they're almost identical. It's just a civil charge. Um, it would seem it would put you on pretty high levels of notices to the legitimacy of this type of alleged behavior. 
Right. Yeah. And that's the government wants to bring this in because it's saying that she knew that she was engaging in fraud and took steps to actually hide her involvement from it. So they think it's weird that Smith wouldn't have mentioned working with her at this deposition. But he did mention that he worked with some of the defendants kind of in his plea. He didn't mention Jen by name. But it's just interesting because they actually did work together. And it goes to your earlier point. Maybe they had some sort of agreement to leave each other's names off of calls or leave each other's names out of certain things to try and not implicate each other. But it is just weird that he wouldn't mention Jen if they were co-workers in this deposition. Yeah. And it says he's right. This it goes. This is they're saying this is direct evidence of her intent. And if for this conspiracy to commit wire fraud, telemarketing charge, they have to they can't just show that she was involved. They have to actually show her state of mind. And if any of you have watched or listened to the dropout about Elizabeth Holmes and, you know, that whole debacle the government had to prove the same thing. They had to prove she had the intent to defraud investors and the intent to do those things. And so it's actually having to prove what's in someone's mind, which is difficult to do. They're saying this is this is some evidence of it. All right. And then the next thing that Jen was trying to keep out is use of the Mastery Pro Group credit card. We talked about her arguments earlier. The government responds and says that evidence of the disposition of fraud proceeds is relevant to several important issues at trial, including participation in the fraud scheme, control over the scheme, and motive for engaging in the crime. The fact that she used the card in violation of her agreement with Stu and then lied about it may be further relevant to rebut any number of possible defenses, including lack of control, lack of intent to defraud, or mistake. What do you think about this one? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, the just non-lawyer Real Housewives fan in me wants to know everything she bought with that <laughs> credit card. <laughs> like, I want to know what was, I want to see what was on the Mastery Pro charge account. Um, <laughs> like that Girardi list. So that's Remember when we got that Girardi list and posted it on our Instagram? Yeah. And like several followers were like, this charge is this person and this charge is this. That was fun. I want to see that too. That yeah. was fun. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and then the government makes a point that says they haven't decided whether or not to elicit this testimony if it comes in at trial. But they say it's not going to be more sensational or more disturbing than the charged crimes and will therefore not be unduly prejudicial. And they cite a case in support of that. I have not dealt. I've never heard that argument before, basically saying if for it to be more prejudicial than probative, then it needs to be worse than yeah. the crime charge. But I don't know. I don't know how good that is. I mean, think about like a murder case. There's so many small things that could be really prejudicial that aren't worse than murder. So I don't. But I don't know. I I haven't researched that. So I can't speak to the um, veracity of that. argument. This one just feels like the weakest one to me. I don't know. Like the fact that she used the credit card and lied to Stu. Okay. (laughs) So what? It's almost like the like the 90s comics, like women be shopping. Like, why is (laughs) this? Like, okay. (laughs) they're not charging her for like not paying her credit card bills it's just weird but the next one that jen was trying to keep out and the government responds to is evidence that during the indictment period jen threatened Stu and his wife yeah so i mean the indictment period like we said earlier is like nine years so that's a long time i will say i thought Stu change looked and this is not a lawyer response. This is just me watching the show. He did look scared of her. I think a lot of people look <laughs> scared of her. But I thought it was her. just more he was un- <laughs> he was uncomfortable being on TV. But he did he looked nervous around her. But we've seen her like 
be very threatening. She threatened to drown. Didn't she threaten to drown Whitney yeah. in the lake? I'm not, again, so I should be, let me switch back to legal topics. They're saying this evidence would be very probative because of, of their case, because she, they believe she is going to allege that Stu Chains was the mastermind behind any fraudulent activity and that she was kept in the dark about the criminal conduct in which that does align with what she said that we saw the last season of Salt Lake City. She seemed to be very clear. I had, I don't, I had no idea what was going on. I, these charges confused me. You know, Smith had his own stuff, and this, I had, I was just, I, she acted shocked that she had gotten arrested and indicted. So, yeah, I can see her making that argument. I know. I think, I think she is, and this is kind of proof yeah. that she is. I well, yeah. we'll have to wait and see if she does at trial, but. What do you think of the question that we got at our Zoom, again, our Zoom, it's so fun, that she, after being deposed, her and Stu and the FTC giving the sanctions against their old company, that they took that and started their new company thinking that they were doing it right this time, that they were like, we're going to do it right this time. We're not going to make anything illegal. We're going to like be by the book. What do you think about that argument? Do you believe that that is what Stu and Jen were trying to do? Do you think that's something that they're going to argue at trial? What do you think? I mean, that might be something that it's hard. It's hard because like that might be something that Jen tries to argue, but that she thought she was doing it correctly. But she seems to be disavowing that she was in business with Stu Chains, which I don't know how she's going to do that. Yeah. But there isn't you still have to have a real product for this. You have to be selling a real product. Like something that you know is just not com- just an utter fabrication, which is what the government is alleging. So, I think that's an argument she will make. I don't know how like well it's going to work for her. I mean, the Kosovo accounts and the Tiger text. I don't think helps that argument. The fact that she had foreign accounts and yeah. that she was trying to be allegedly trying to be sneaky about it. So. I don't know. And you're right. That is a competing narrative. Like, how can you be doing it right with Stu, but then also not work with Stu? So we'll see what she tries to do. I think I am leaning more towards the her maybe argument that they didn't work together at all. I think she'll do that. Yeah. I, I like this. I, I mean, I, this sentence in here is interesting that because it looks like one of the things that Stu and or the government are going to say is that, and this is a quote, evidence the defendant threatened Smith and his wife is relevant to the nature of the relationship, which is what Ceci and I were just talking about. But then it's, they say it's also probative of her guilt by showing that Shaw exercised emotional and psychological control over Smith. So either she has, she might be trying, like Ceci's saying, she might try to make the argument that he was controlling her, but then it looks like the government could possibly be putting on Stu to make the argument that she had emotional and psychological control over him. It just gets more and more interesting, doesn't it? (laughs) It does. It does. (laughs) Did they argue stuff about the housewives clips? Yeah, that's they did. They they did say they said the government will likely offer as trial exhibits brief clips. This is a quote from the reality television show, The Real Housewives, The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. They say the clips will consist of defendants, meaning Shaw's statements and interactions with other members of the telemarketing scheme, including Smith. So I'm like, including. wait a minute. Yeah. Whoa. Now, this is not please nobody hear us say this and think that one of the other cast members is involved 
That's Mm -mm. not what I think this Mm -mm. means. You know, she's had multiple assistants that we've seen over the two years that Salt Lake City has aired. And so I think that's what that is. I don't want anyone to take this as like, you know, baby gorgeous was implicated (laughs) in the telemarketing scheme or something. Justin, Whitney's husband. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or Justin or anybody. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. And then on the co-conspirator statements, what would it what did they argue there? I mean, they. This is co-conspirator statements are just well known to be ad- admissible. So they they make they they go ahead and make all the arguments for that. They say the government anticipates that cooperating witnesses will testify about conversations with individuals who worked with the defendant about the telemarketing scheme, and then they say these co-conspirator statements all fall within a tightly defined conspiracy of individuals who worked with the defendant either at companies she controlled or at companies with which she partnered. The government alleges that these co-conspirator statements are admissible under Federal Rule of Evidence 801 D2E, and which says, you know, a statement is not hearsay if the statement is offered against an opposing party and was made by the party's co-conspirator during and in furtherance of the conspiracy. So that's what they're, they're saying, like, this is this is the Federal Rule of Evidence. This is exactly what we're trying to do is what the rule says we're allowed to do. And we'll get that in. So to admit a statement under this rule. So hearsay is an out of court statement for the truth of the matter asserted, which is basically saying it's like just a statement that you're trying to say the statement is true, whatever the content of the statement is, but it was made outside of court or some other admissible evidence. So to admit a statement under the co-conspirator rule, the court, and this is a legal issue, so the court has to find uh, two facts, and they say by a preponderance of the evidence. One, that a conspiracy that included the defendant and the declarant existed, and two, that the statement was made during the course of and in furtherance of the conspiracy. So because her alleged co-conspirators have all pled guilty, then and acknowledge the existence of the conspiracy, the government kind of has that in the bag for getting oh, that yeah, evidence. That's in. a shoe in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they have a the government has like a this is obviously the co-conspirator statements are very important. So there's a lot more that they have in the their response. They do point out that they'll prove the existence of a smaller conspiracy to launder the funds of the telemarketing scheme. Apparently somebody is going to, there's another co-conspirator that's going to testify about that as well. So yeah, that's the government's response. All right. So we actually don't know what the outcome is on this. It's still being heard, but we will update everyone once we have a decision on all, all of these because they're all very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then there were some other filings filed by the co-defendants in Jen Shaw's case, and it was motions to quash the subpoenas that Jen Shaw served on the co-defendants' counsel. I believe she served these subpoenas on all of the co-defendants' counsel, and the government ends up joining in on these motions. Let me read what is going on. So the reason that they're trying to quash, which is like, I kind of feel like quash is one of those words that it kind of sounds like what it is. What <laughs> it does, because like, it sounds onom- like squash. Squash. Yeah. yeah. It's like onomatopoeia. Is that what that is? Yeah, I think so. It, yeah. It's like, it's it's basically to squash it. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to produce these things that you were asking me to produce. It's asking the judge to rule on that. And so the subpoena, they, they put what the requests are that Jen sent them 
and the subpoena requests the production of the following documents. All documents and communications between you and any member of the United States Attorney's Office concerning this matter. Number two, all documents and communications between you and any law enforcement agent concerning this matter. And number three, all attorney notes or other documents prepared by you from each proffer session attended by the defendant in connection with this matter. So that was the only three requests served, but they were served on all co-defendants counsel, I believe. And they're trying to knock it out. Anything you want to say on that one? Yeah, I think, you know, it's that may have been a good like some of the stuff the government has to go ahead and give up. And so at some point before trial and so having filing these motions like in sending the we're sending the subpoenas to the outside people could maybe hurry the government along with actually producing it. So that might have been a good strategy. And I think you're right. I think that is their strategy because then the government joined in on the motions and said that the requests were improper, but anything she's not seeking that isn't privileged will be produced via the government's production. Mm -hmm. So they're like, don't go chasing the co-defendants. We're going to give you your stuff. Just wait. Yeah. But the fact that like now there's pressure on getting it done, that could, yeah, like you're, like you said, that could be helpful. All right. The next one is a motion to quash filed by ABC. And I wanted to talk about this one <laughs> because who knew? <laughs> who knew that the documentary would be all over this docket? So really, it seemed to me that the subpoena and we have the requests in here. In, their motion, in the motion to quash, it seems like she's really asking for the notes with the prosecutors that were interviewed as part of the mm-hmm. documentary, not necessarily the notes that we may have sent back and forth. <laughs> so I think we're fine. Uh, not that we sent anything outside of the docket. <laughs> but so they say that Jen Shaw's subpoena seeks all footage, including raw video footage made, made or used in conjunction with the program. So the, the doc. Um, All documents and communications between ABC News and any member of the prosecution team concerning the documentary. Identification of all government agents or other members of the prosecution team who provided information to ABC News in connection with the program. Any and all releases, waivers, or other documentation provided to any individual who appeared on the program, including any member of the prosecution team. All video footage concerning defendant Jen Shaw filmed in preparation for the program. Any and all documents and communications concerning the interviews taken for the documentary. And communications between you and any employee of Forest Production, Intent TV, Bravo, or NBC Universal concerning the documentary. <laughs> so they're just trying to get everything yeah. from the doc. And they are trying to quash or squash the motion because based on the journalistic privilege, which I have never dealt with the journalistic privilege before. But I guess the crux of it is that there is some privilege when people speak to journalists. Anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, so I am so used to complex, high dollar, really contested civil litigation in federal court. And in those types of cases, you like the amount of stuff that you have to produce if it's asked for is tends to be like really broad and astronomical. And so I feel like looking at this as a civil litigator, it's kind of like this would be kind of basic third party discovery, like you would ask for it. I'm not talking about the governmental privilege or the, you know, 
I'm sorry, mm-hmm. the reporting. Journalistic. Journalistic privilege, yeah. But just being like, hey, if someone has talked about this or if it could potentially lead to relevant evidence and if it's, you know, uh, proportional to the needs of whatever the case is in a civil case, you could make a really strong argument for getting it. But in a criminal trial where someone's life and freedom is at stake, it's like that the amount of stuff that you're allowed to ask for seems to be so much narrower. Yes, the government has to provide you, you know, exculpatory information and has to provide you like by law things. But it just seems like it, you're allowed to ask for so much more in a civil trial. And then it, temp- it, you know, it tends to maybe even get granted more often. I just think the contrast is interesting. Yeah, I agree. So the the. The standard for proving privilege here, if it's a non-confidential source, I guess it's a little narrower to prove whether or not something's privileged. But the litigant, so that Jen, would be entitled to it if she can show that the material at issue are of likely relevance to a significant issue in the case and are not reasonably obtainable from other available sources. So if those notes, if the extra footage was relevant to something in the case, like an issue in the case and she can't get it from somewhere else, then she should be able to get it. I mean, I can see her asking for the people at like the Department of Homeland Security, even though they but like they weren't directly involved with her case. I mean, I think the government was obviously very careful. Um, they balanced the the need like their goal is to get this information out. And I think the documentary did a great job of showing how these scams can work and increasing awareness about them and, you know, encouraging people to report them and showing the harm that they can cause. And so hopefully preventing other people um, from joining similar scams and doing that type of telemarketing or whatever. I think that's really important. I think the government has a very strong interest and valid interest in doing that. And I think they were very careful not to not to do anything that would interfere or involve the actual investigation. So I don't think she has a good argument for this, but I, I understand why she's asking for it. Um, I don't think that they, she, I mean, does she want the stuff Dana Wilkie said? <laughs> does she want Dana Wilkie's notes? <laughs> That's not going to help. I, I can see, I can see why it's being asked for, but I don't think that she's going to get it. And I don't think she's entitled to it because I don't think there's a strong enough argument. No. And there was a motion that she filed shortly after it came out seeking to dim- dismiss the whole case right. because of those HSI agents' involvement in it, and the judge yeah, shut that I mean, down. She, so, I just felt like she had no argument for that. She continued to appear on TV. We can't argue. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's not gonna work. So, in response to the government moving to quash the subpoena, she says that. ABC News incorrectly claims that the information sought by the subpoena is categorically irrelevant. The information requested bears on the allegations of the underlying indictment. Um, specifically, the subpoena requests statements of potential trial witnesses in the case. To be clear, neither Ceci or I are potential trial witnesses in any way. We have no facts, no personal knowledge of anything, no. uh, nothing. So we're not involved with that. I don't think Dana Wilkie is either. Uh, Ronald Richards definitely is not. Who else was on <laughs> The random fan. Yeah, the fan. I don't <laughs> Yeah, well, but yeah, Koba. he could. He could be. Yeah. The designer, yeah. the clothing designer, he could be. So she's saying specifically they request the statements of potential trial witnesses, including alleged victims, supervisor agents. These are certainly relevant to, this is her statement, uh, Ms. Shaw's case. Um, and then she's saying the potential witnesses may have made statements to a third party that could be used as a prior and consistent statement. So that's why there could be potentially exculpatory evidence. As she says, the subpoena seeks actual prior videotape statements from potential witnesses in Ms. Shaw's case and not just third party notes of those statements. She's making the arguments that if any of these people that were on the documentary are actual witnesses, I should get their statements. And I think Ceci's right that it 
the only one I can think of would be Koa because he actually had personal knowledge of Jen and interactions with her. Yeah, so we'll see. This one is also still pending. We don't have a decision yet. Relatively a new motion. So we'll see how it comes out. Anything else to add on these motions? not on these. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so yeah, that was all of the motions that have been recently filed. I think these were obviously in anticipation of trial when it was set for March 22nd, but now that it was pushed yeah, to it's July. July. Yeah. July or June. Now that it was pushed to the summer, <laughs> they're going to have a, a bit to kind of resolve them. Anything else you want to add about these motions or Jen's case no, just, in general? You know, I she is innocent until proven guilty. We haven't seen all the facts and it's I'm just really interested for who the witnesses are going to be and what is actually going to come in. I would be surprised if the judge grants some of the motions of keeping and because the judge just probably doesn't want to deal with the clips unless he absolutely has to. I wouldn't be surprised if some of her uh, motions to exclude things do get granted. Agreed. Um, And then I wanted to raise how Heather said that she was going to be sitting there every day of the trial to support Jen and same with coach. So... If we yeah. go, we'll see you there, guys. <laughs> I like New York in the summertime, so. Uh, yeah. Which I, I still think it's going to get moved again, to be honest. But we'll see. Well, you want to wrap again, this up? Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you know, check out our Instagram for updates in between episodes. If you want to vote on uh, what our next episode is going to be, get on our Patreon. Like I always say, our merch is a like, it's really cute. If you guys have things that you want, let us know. And yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. The Bravo Docket is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Bravo Docket is part of the ACAST Creator Network.